can you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28? And at the risk of being redundant, we're going to talk about the Great Commission. Um, it, it's a, it's, it is a joy to be back. I've been here several times uh, since I, I, I met Steve and Chris and the family and, and um, started coming to this church. And what I, what I love so much uh, is the Sunday night prayer meetings. Do any of you come to the Sunday night prayer meetings? Oh man, I was, we were in a circle once praying um, and, and actually uh, Pastor Joe said, come, um, everybody pray for Josh and Kelsey and, and their kids and the kids, I, they were here but they weren't in here and so I think they were out terrorizing somewhere and I had spoken a little bit but as we're praying, the, this lady's like, and Lord, we thank you for Josh's sense of humor but we know people who have sense of humors have a lot of pain, so help him with his pain, Lord. <laughs> you can only get that at a prayer meeting. You know, those kinds of stories. And uh, I've been trying to find out what kind of pain I've had since. But um, And notice that when Steve said, well, never mind. Matthew chapter 28, verse... 16, then the eleven disciples went into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven. Um, excuse me, I looked at my watch. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey or observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We have the Great Commission here. And Jesus Christ, um, has risen from the dead and he is on his way up, which we'll talk about even later, to go be at the right hand of the Father. And um, this is the Great Commission. This is where we get really the last words in the physical of Jesus Christ right before he goes to be at the right hand, right after he um, rises from the, the dead. And, I, and it is so important that we understand we are those people, as it were, in the shadow of the apostles, fulfilling the mandate of the Great Commission. We've been hearing a lot about mandates over the last couple years. The mask mandate, to which I personally, I, um, I, I don't, I have an agenda to, to talk about that, but I personally hate with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, I, it, I've had to watch my kids wear masks for like 35 hours on the plane. That's why I hate it. And, and we have the mandate in Kenya where we have our church. We were having a staff meeting in, in the sanctuary one day, and um, the, these two policemen come in, and they come in with AK. AK-47s, now they always carry AK-47s, so it's not like they came in 
and were pointing or anything, but nevertheless, they had them in their hands, and they, the guy pointed, he said, don't have church. And um, we killed him and buried him in the back, but <laughs> he, it was a mandate, it, it, the government mandate to close our church down in Kenya. We hear about these mandates. The mandate that we need to be the most concerned with is the Great Commission, the mandate from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, our Savior Jesus Christ. I was sent this article by my pastor a few few days ago, and let me just read a little bit of it. Pastors and lay people in America have dramatically different views about the scope of missions, Barna Research Group. According to um, the Great Commission, in Christ's words in Matthew chapter 28 that we just read, the Barna survey found that 85% of senior pastors in America believe that the Great Commission is a mandate that needs to be obeyed, and if not obeyed, we are in disobedience and in sin uh, against our Lord Jesus Christ. Though 85% of senior pastors believe that world missions and missions in general is a mandate, only 42% of lay people, that is church members, believe in this study done around America and churches in Protestantism that missions and the Great Commission is a mandate and that is a 39-point gap. I was shocked that 85% of senior pastors believe this. But the gap is a 39%, so that's probably not true for Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia, but I can tell you, you're one of the only uh, churches that has missions conferences that I've ever been a part of. And this 39% gap is probably in some ways a problem that the senior pastor is precipitating, though he believes that he's staying quiet about it. We get involved in things in church that are very important, caught up in the good things, like worship, singing, praising God, listening to Christian music, caught up in the good things of fellowship, distributing the gifts that we have been given by God to encourage and build up the body of Christ. We get caught up in prayer. We get involved in Christian services of all kind for the sake of the advancement of the church and we pursue holiness in our own lives. And all of these things are commanded uh, of us in scripture but none of them is the ultimate goal for the Christian. The Lord has given to the church, the Bible says in Ephesians, apostles and prophets and evangelists and teaching pastors for the edifying of the saints, for the perfection or the perfect work of the saints that the body might be equipped to do the work of the ministry. So if we do all of these things that I've mentioned, like Christian doctrine, vitally important, obviously it's mentioned here in the Great Commission, Um, Music, which is actually even commanded as we gather together to sing uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. All wonderful things. 
But if we do all of those things and never proclaim the gospel to our colleagues, neighbors, family, and friends, we have forfeited the very purpose for which we meet every Sunday morning. If we're not doing this. This great commission that we have received by the Lord Jesus Christ after his resurrection is the very climax and pinnacle of all redemptive history to this point in time. There will be another climax when he returns. This is the climax of all redemptive history. You think about the plan of God from the beginning was his creation. He creates man tells man not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't make death happen, essentially, is what God commands Adam and Eve. Um, but make life happen. Don't make death happen. Make life happen. And you know the story. Adam and Eve did eat, and death happens. 25,000 people a day die from hunger. 10,000 of them are children. We see them dying in Africa and Asia and uh, many of these missionaries have seen. That is 3,750,000 per year people die just from being hungry and it does not happen in America. The only reason somebody will die in America from starvation is by choice. These people around the world in these third world nations are dying from starvation, not by choice. Millions and millions have died from war. One in five girls in America, and that percentage goes up higher in the third world, are molested. One in 20 boys. 400,000 people are murdered each year around the world. Death did happen, and it began when that atom bomb blew up in the Garden of Eden. But God had a plan. He reconciled men back to himself, and that was his plan when he chose Abraham, when he preserved Moses in that river, when he delivered the Hebrews from Egypt. Then he anoints David, preserves the line of Christ. Then Christ in heaven comes down, condescends, and, is, and he becomes a man, the great incarnation. John Stott said, there is nothing as fantastic in fiction as the incarnation of Jesus Christ. There has no, there's been no story come out of the imaginations of men that can even come close to God becoming man. He comes down. He lives a sinless, perfect life. He's kind to women and children, which was unique in that culture and unique in the third world. Even today, America's blessed with the Judeo-Christian heritage it comes from. The rest of the world is not like this. It, it, there are those times, you, and if you're not a missionary in the third world, will you raise your hand so I can get an, an understanding? Raise your hand if you're not a missionary in the third world, and that's okay. You're still awesome people. All right. It, you come back after like three years. Our first... Um, time on the mission field we didn't come back for three years then we walk into this place called Walmart that is like 250,000 square feet of food it is an incredibly abundant nation 
and Jesus, he was a part of a shame and honor culture that was very um, cruel to women and children. He's kind to them. He's unique. He teaches them. He provides for them. He dies on the cross. After dying on the cross, he rises from the dead and all authority is given to him and this is his message after he has risen. All the time, even before time, he had planned on coming. He had planned on dying. He had planned on rising and after rising. This is his message to us. We have a program in... Um, I don't even, I hate to call it a program, but we have a ministry at, at Calvary Chapel Bangor, my home church. It's called Calvary Residential Discipleship, where we bring in uh, people who've had heroin addiction and alcohol and all this, mainly from Jersey and Philly. No, I'm kidding. They're, they're from everywhere. And the testimonies of how these lives are being transformed are amazing. I told them last summer, we were sitting around a fire, I was talking to these guys, and I said, I want you to know that our church does not tolerate you, but because of you and the supernatural work of God in your life, it is the lifeblood of this church, Calvary Chapel, Bangor. Watching people get saved through the power of the gospel is the lifeblood of a church, it is the lifeblood of a Christian family, and it is the lifeblood of a Christian individual. And if you're not watching it, it's not a lack of the power of the gospel. It is a lack of faithfulness on our parts. It is powerful. And this is the message. This is the most important thing for us. I want to offer two things, though I'll mention four, in terms of what are the contemporary challenges which threaten to engulf and envelop the church and which the church must resist to continue the mandate of the Great Commission. Let me mention four and talk about two of them. The four to mention is pluralism, materialism, relativism, and humanism. Now, I don't want to lose you. They're simple. Pluralism simply is there is no such thing as objective truth. Pluralism affirms that all religious claims have equal value. They're equally val uh, valid. The antidote to pluralism is the objective truth of God's word and the practical way that we need to fight against pluralism in our society is that the church does expositional Bible teaching something that I don't need to expound on today because we're at Calvary Chapel. Unless one of you missionaries are not doing expositional Bible teaching and we encourage you to do it or we will flog you. <laughs> Relativism also is something I don't want to spend a lot of time in and it, it is similar to pluralism, but let me just... It is the doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to the culture, society, and historical context. One way of looking at relativism is we believe what is true based on what we want to do, based according to our desires, then this is what's true. The antidote to that is obedience to God's will and not our own. 
But what I want to talk to you about, because it is very prevalent in the West and especially America, is materialism. Materialism. The West, and especially America, is unbearably affluent compared to the third world. This doesn't have to uh, cause us to be materialistic, but we are so tempted by it, and it can lead so easily to materialism. You have an iPhone 9 that works completely fine, but when the iPhone 14 comes out, you're going to get it. That is... I don't want to get too specific. If you have an iPhone 14 and you needed it, that's okay. (laughs) You ever notice these things, we have more technology in these than those who flew to the moon. All I do is like text message and emails and I don't need another one unless this one doesn't work anymore. And then I would like you to support the buying of a new iPhone 14 for this missionary. I'm kidding. (laughs) Materialism, not asceticism. Asceticism is the belief that we need to avoid all forms of um, material things. And that's what caused that movement of monks and those people to live in a hole and do nothing and be a part of the world. That's not what I want to preach. However, materialism is a preoccupation with material things until they suffocate the Holy Spirit screaming out for you to share Christ and for you to support the work of the Great Commission. That is materialism. A preoccupation with material things until they suffocate your spiritual life. Matthew 6, 19 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroys and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves do not break in and steal. You know there is an investment that nobody can ever take away from you, and that is the investment of the gospel in spiritual things you will receive a reward for that at the Bema Seat Judgment. And I, I don't have time to talk a lot about the Bema Seat, but it is, it is a profoundly amazing doctrine to get into, and I know you guys have probably talked about it several times here at Calvary Philly. But we need to get as many rewards as we possibly can on earth so that we can worship Jesus properly at the Bema Seat Judgment and throw back those rewards at his feet because we are going to be embarrassed if we have nothing at the Bema Seat Judgment. And there's a whole study there. Um, Have you ever been invited to a birthday party and you forgot to bring a present? Make sure that doesn't happen at the Bema Seat. There is an investment that can happen. And when we really see the beauty of Jesus Christ face to face and not only experience it from his word in the Holy Spirit on earth, it's going to be so profound that we're going to want to worship him. And then and there at that moment, it is what we've done on earth that allows them to worship him in that service. 1 Timothy 6 6 through 9 says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. 
And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men into destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed away from their faith because of their greediness. That is those who were already in the faith. Years ago, I was in Kenya. I was asked to come speak at a conference at this church. I had never been to this church. I had no idea what to expect. I just said yes. And I went and I sat down and I was the next session and there was a lady preaching the session before me to which I was listening to. She proceeded to tell the congregants that if you don't have $100, she said 10,000 shillings in your bank account, you're bringing shame to Jesus Christ. These people are Africans, very poor people. She said, and then she started telling them how their pastor represents them and represents Christ, so they need to buy him a gold watch and a brand new Land Cruiser Prado so that he can represent them well. I was the next speaker. And, and listen, guys, I don't want you to think for a moment that I just had this courage boiling up within me to go speak against such heresy. Um, I, I was nervous. I was conflicted. I thought is, I started t- uh, going into the PC direction, politically correct. It's like, can I be tactful? And I... I I know we got to be tactful at times, but I see Jesus doing some pretty radical things in the New Testament. So I beat that one. No, I didn't. I, I didn't. But what was, what was I supposed to do? I had planned a, a study in the Sermon on the Mount. We went to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I said, I, I don't know if this was right. Trevor or Steve can tell me if it was afterwards. I said, listen, guys. Everything that this woman has said to you today is a lie. And ma'am, I want you to sit there and listen to a real Bible study from God's word. And those, everybody but her and the pastor got on their feet and started cheering because she told them that they were shaming Christ because they didn't have $100. A love for money has destroyed the third world churches in many ways, especially in Kenya. They are so poor that the thought of a supernatural God supernaturally depositing money into their bank account sounds really good to them. Materialism. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble verse after verse after verse after verse, Jesus is encouraging us to invest in heavenly heavenly things, spiritual things, invest in the great commission. Did you hear the story of the man who once, while walking down the road, found a $5 bill on the street? He then decided to always walk down the road with his head down and eyes on the street. In the course of all of his years, he accumulated 29,516 buttons, 54,172 pins, 12 cents, 
a bad back and a miserable disposition. What did he lose? The smiles on the faces of his friends? Couldn't see the beauty of starlight and moonlight and the blossoms of spring and so much more. That's materialism. It always takes more from you than it gives to you. Psalm 121 says, I will lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and the earth. And I'm telling you, he's coming back soon. And we need to get as busy as we possibly can, looking up and not down on the world and the things that we possess. The time truly is now. What's the cure the Bible is teaching us for materialism? Simplicity. Be content with what you have. And if you need to get something else, well, it's okay. But simplicity. Hold loosely to the things of this world. Hold loosely. Do you need to sell your house to to better glorify Christ in some situation you're in? Hold loosely to that place if you need to and sell it. If it is better that you hold on to your house for the glory of God, then don't sell it. And whatever example that you need to think of, simplicity is an antidote to materialism. Contentment is an antidote to materialism. Be content. And generosity is an antidote to materialism. Make sure you're giving away the things that you wouldn't otherwise hold on to to continue holding loosely onto the things that you have. Years ago, I was at a church in Tennessee. I was going to stay there about a week, a series of, uh, of teachings and different things that were happening. And the church decided they were going to have a yard sale to, to, uh, to give money. And all the proceeds were going to go to uh, the mission we have in Kenya. This was exciting for me. And so this, this older gentleman um, to his defense, was kind of new to the faith, so I don't want to seem too harsh, but he said, hey, will you come help me get the stuff that you can use for the, for the yard sale? I was like, oh, yeah, of course. So we go over to his house one day. He walks into his garage, and he says, what are the things that I don't need or want? And he's looking around, and he proceeded to give me all the junk from his yard sale, or from his garage. I basically cleaned his garage out for him. And I thought to myself, that so often what happens in the Lord's work is we give what we do not want to hold what we want, but we will lose so much more in the process. Materialism, it will destroy, it will destroy you. It will render you very little fruit for the glory of Jesus Christ. Job 121, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Have you ever considered that life is a pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness? Materialism has plagued America. And materialism has plagued the American church. Now, at the end of the sermon, which I was given 50 minutes, I want you to know I'm taking all of it. At the end of this, I want to give you some practical things that 
that you can do. Abraham Lincoln, one of my heroes and, and also one of Trevor's heroes, we went to Gettysburg yesterday. It was a real joy. I've been thinking about it all day. Um, he was attending a Presbyterian church in D.C., which if you've ever really heard some of um, anointed Presbyterian teachers, they make really good Bible teachers. And um, on his way out, it was actually a larger church, and he was a pretty well-known Bible teacher. And this gentleman um, who was with Abraham Lincoln, the president, said, hey, what would you think of the sermon? And he said it was one of the most amazing demonstrations of oratory that I have ever seen or heard. And he said, so it was a success. And Abraham Lincoln said, no, it was a failure. And he goes, well, what do you mean? He goes, he didn't give us anything to accomplish this week. We need to walk away with tangible things from God's word that we can directly apply to our lives today. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that uh, at the end. I had mentioned pluralism, relativism. We skipped over those two. We talked about materialism. Fourthly, humanism. What is humanism? Humanism is a philosophical statement and belief that all meaning in life is the happiness of mankind. Do you remember in Luke 19 and John chapter 12 when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, many call it the triumphal entry. It's on Passover week. He's coming in Monday morning. And crowds of people line the streets and begin to shout out, Hosanna, you got it. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means deliver us. And some Bible preachers, and I think rightfully so, I think it is both triumphal, but it is also tearful. When Jesus comes in, he begins to weep. He begins to cry. Why did he do that? I believe it was because of humanism, that those people who were screaming to Jesus Christ, Hosanna, deliver us, actually wanted deliverance from something else entirely than their own personal sins to be forgiven. They wanted deliverance from the oppression of Rome, which caused so much poverty in their lives. They wanted to be delivered from their struggles and their troubles and their trials physically. And it would make them happy if Jesus Christ were to be that person who would deliver them from such worldly trials. Also in John chapter 6, you remember, he had fed them. And then he goes on the mountain to pray. They try to find him, but he slips from them. They had already seen the disciples sail over. He walks on water. They have that whole story where Peter comes out. But on the other side, they found him. They're like, man, how did you get here? They wanted to anoint him king. Why? Because he fed them. And then he says, you did not come to me because of me. You have come because of the loaves and the fishes, but unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part with me. They wanted to use Jesus Christ to advance their own desires and their own will. Humanism, a philosophical statement that says the end of all meaning is my happiness. That is not Christianity. Christianity 
is a belief that all meaning in life, no matter what the cost, is to bring Christ glory and to enjoy him. That's real Christianity. And see, when you're a humanist, and, and, and it is pervasive in our society, not at this church, but it is pervasive in so many churches and maybe even in some of the people in some of our churches. Using Christ, provisions, and power to advance their desires on earth. That is humanism, and that is a problem. It's a problem for him because he will not be accepted this way, and neither would you accept a friend who only wanted to use you to advance themselves. Humanism is a problem in the church. It's a big problem. Jesus Christ deserves and real Christianity is his glory and he is worthy of such worship. He is beautiful, he is magnificent. Materialism and humanism plagues so many in the church around the world. I've seen it, I've searched my own heart. Even at a time in Africa when I went there to quote, and I experienced this personally as well, uh, an old-time favorite preacher of mine named Paris Reed had, he said, when I moved to Africa, I didn't find poor naked heathen running around in the woods. I found monsters of iniquity who hated God and didn't want to talk about Christ or the Bible. And I was mad at God. And I went into my prayer closet, this preacher said, and he said, it's a... tiny little thing you've done sending me here to these people. They don't even want to talk about you. All their African religions and the witchcraft that was going on in the early 1900s when he had gone to Sudan. And God spoke to him and said, you're using my provisions to advance your own ministry in Sudan. I did not send you to Africa for their sake. I sent you to Africa for my sake. Do I not deserve the reward of my suffering? Do I not deserve for those whom I've died? I sent you to Africa for me, not for them. And missionary, that's the only way you will be sustained on your mission field is if you're there for Christ and not those people. And pastor, it's the only way you will be sustained in ministry if you're there for Christ and not for power position or those people. The Apostle Paul said it's a small little thing that I am judged by you Corinthians. We, the church, need a radical non-conformity to combat these wicked desires that so easily creep into our hearts. Four things, real quick, on to combat materialism and humanism. And please, I don't want you to think for a moment that I'm trying to preach against something on the outside of these walls this afternoon, but something that can creep so easily into my heart and into yours. Four points. Number one, pray. In Luke chapter 11, It came to pass, it says there in verse 7, as Jesus was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Do you know that this is the only thing that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to do? 
There was something transcendent about the prayer life of Jesus Christ, something that was so filled with belief, so powerful. His prayer life was so effective and influential to the disciples that they didn't ask, how do you heal a leper? How do you cast demons out, though they did? How do you feed thousands of people, though Jesus wanted them to do it without him telling them exactly what to do? All these powerful, monumental things that were happening in front of their eyes, the one thing that they asked was, teach us how to pray. And we get the disciples' prayer from that. Prayer is so, you guys hear it, I I have gotten at least 25 emails um, from Pastor Joe. They weren't personally sent to me, but to all the pastors. I didn't want you to think that me and Joe were like super tight, like I was bragging up here. He never calls. He was sending these emails to all these pastors, pray, 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 pray. It is so redundant that the only conclusion is that man understands the only way that the power of the Holy Spirit can come down on us. The beginning and gates of that is prayer. The prayer of God's people. If you are not praying, you will have no power to be the witness that God has called you to be. They were praying on the day of Pentecost. They were praying. And you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Prayer. How do you know when the Holy Spirit comes upon you? You know after you ask the Father. The Bible says in the Gospel of Luke, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give you the Holy Spirit for those who ask? You need to believe in faith. And I hope every day, multiple times a day, especially when you wake up, Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit upon me. Oh, Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit upon me. Oh, Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit upon me. It is the number one prayer that I have ever uttered in my entire Christian life, especially in the last few years when I am becoming less impressed with myself and only impressed with the power that God has to change. Oh, Lord, I can't go. I can't, I can't do this without you. I can't go on that stage. We need a revival, not just out in the world, of course, but that revival starts here, now, and today at this missions conference in you. It really does. Pray. Number two, send. Romans 10, 13 through 15, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Send. We pray We send. There's so much more than the the four things I'm going to mention, but we pray and we send. How do you send? Well, you can pray. 
But listen, guys. You can send by investing your finances into the Great Commission through world missions or missions being done around here. Philippians 4, 16 through 18. This is an incredible verse. I love it. Even in Thessalonica, Paul says, you sent me from help for my needs once and again, not that I seek the gift. So he said, you sent me money, you sent me help, not that I seek the gift that you sent. Well, hey, Paul, why do you seek, or what do you seek in the gifts that we've sent, if not the gifts themselves? Oh, that they, they would bless the people? That's not what he says. Oh, the, oh that um, the, um, the, the gospel will be expanded? That's not what he says, though it's true. Listen to what he says. But I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more, and I am well supplied and have received from um, uh, Euphrates, or Aphrodite, not Aphrodite, I'm going to skip the word, I, I lost, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, I'm from Calvary Chapel, the gifts that you've sent, sorry, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So Paul is saying, hey, you guys sent me for this missionary work, and guess what I'm excited about? The fruit that increases on your account. Your account. If this wasn't the Apostle Paul, you would think a missionary was full of something other than the genuine statement that I'm excited for you that you're giving me your money. It's incredible, is it not the Apostle Paul? It's saying, one of the things that I am so excited about is not the gift that you've given in this missionary endeavors, but that the fruit that increases on your account. Why? Paul understood very much, not only in the mandate of the Great Commission, but it is more blessed to give than to receive. You who are givers you understand how joyful it has been in all the giving that you have done in your life, both to your church or whomever you've been generous to. It's a joy. Proverbs 11.25 says, A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Thirdly, go. So you have... Uh, pray, you have sinned, you have go. Second Corinthians 5.20 Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. My pastor read this the other day when he was teaching through 2 Corinthians and something that this struck me, and you know, we've, we've read this before and we've read it before, but it struck me once again. That it says, it's as if though God himself is persuading men through us. The, God is in us screaming out for us to go and share Christ with the world. Go, go, he's saying. Go share Christ with that person who I have been putting it on your heart to share Christ with. 
for some time now at your workplace. I don't want you to get the impressions. I, I want you to hold cardboard signs out on the street and say repent go, or go to hell. I don't think that's effective. Even street evangelism, though I've done a lot of it, I think the most inf- effective way of evangelism is loving people. We're going to talk about the end. But sharing Christ with your friends, your families, and your colleague. At bare minimum, we should agree, folk, that that is a responsibility that you have. Every time I'm with somebody new, I am praying, Lord, give me an open door. Give me an open door. Give me an open door. Lord, I want to. I don't, I don't want to be weird. I just want an open door. Make him say something. And guess what? About 70, 80% of the time, I get a closed door. They have locked the key. They don't want to hear. And they, and they, can, they, can, they can sense I'm, I'm knocking. And you're like, okay, well respectfully we're not going to continue sharing Christ with them but you can never have somebody open the door if you don't go knock on it oh give me an open door give me an open door you got to go fourthly manifest the nature of Jesus Christ here in the great commission as we re- go back to him and I didn't have time today to do an exposition of Matthew 28 But at the end, Jesus says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Even to the end of the age. When I first read this, it was quite interesting to me. And actually, it may not have been the first time, but a few years ago, it struck me like, wait a minute. Jesus just told us several times that he's leaving and he's going to be at the right hand of the Father. Back on the subject of just personal selfishness, when Jesus in John chapter 16, he had already told them several times, I'm leaving, I'm going to be with my Father. I'm leaving, I'm going to be with my Father. He says it several times, and in John's Gospel, I want to read it for you. I don't want to misquote it. I can't even pronounce people's names, so I need help. He says here, but now I go away in verse 5 to him who sent me and none of you ask me, where are you going? Now I go to him who sent me and none of you ask me where I'm going. But, Jesus says, because I have said that I'm going, sorrow has filled your heart and boom, back to the subject of blessing them. Do you know what Jesus does in just a couple verses in the sermon, or not the Sermon on the Mount, the Upper Room Discourse, a night dominated by love and grace and promises and prophecies and blessings? He rebukes them right here. He says, you know, guys, I've told you that I'm going to him who sent me. None of you ask where I'm going, but because I said I'm going, sorrow has filled your heart. In other words, the only thing you disciples care about at this moment is losing me and you're not blessed at all that I go, I get to go be back with my father. You only care about you. You only care about what's going on with you. You only care about your own sorrow. Sorrow has so filled your heart that it has blocked your eyesight, your spiritual eyes. I mean, Jesus left his father. 
He left the glory of heaven, the fellowship that we cannot even comprehend, though we have a little taste of it on earth, we will finally be exposed to its fullness in heaven, which is what real heaven is. He says, I get to go back. I get to go back, and you don't care. Why? Humanism. You're using me to do what you want. You're using me to fulfill your purposes. You're using my provisions and power and beauty to, to help yourself and, and, and not to be concerned with my glory and my desires and my will. Matthew 7 says, only those who do the will of my Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he says several times, I'm going. So when I read that, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age, I thought, what is he talking about? He says he's going, but now he's saying he's staying? If you, if you were to read the, the um, upper room discourse, he says on three different occasions, the Father will be in you, the Spirit is coming to be in you, and I will be in you. But technically speaking, we know that it's the Holy Spirit in us and not Jesus Christ because he's where? At the right hand of the Father. So why does he say here in the Great Commission he will be with us always? And then he says there that he's going to be at the right hand of the Father. Let me tell you, it's because the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son, though three distinct persons existing for all eternity have the exact same nature of perfect holiness and righteousness. Even in the book of Romans, it says Christ is in you. So when he says, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age, he's saying because the Holy Spirit is in you, you possess the God nature. And that's why Peter said through these very great and precious promises, we get to participate in the divine nature of God and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. His nature is in us. Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of God's nature, and love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, long-suffering, self-control. The one I want to focus on is love. Love is the essence of God's nature. God is love. And please listen to this. The very essence of love God's love is sacrifice. You have those four Greek loves that you have heard about, right? You have phileo, which is brotherly love. You have storge, which is kind of a parental affection. You have eros, which is an intimate love, a sensual love. You, can, you know that worldly people can experience and demonstrate those three kinds of loves with one another. You can get phileo at a Phillies game. You can get phileo at a 76ers game, but though not anymore the rest of this season, which I'm upset about. I don't like Miami. One of the things that you're not going to get from somebody who does not have the nature of Christ in them is agape, sacrificial love. And so often in the Christian, that love is being smothered with the cares of this world. 
with humanism and materialism and so much more. You are not, I am not, we are not demonstrating agape love unless what we are doing hurts us. Unless it hurts us. If our service to Christ and others does not hurt us, cost us, we are not loving as Christ loved and have not been affected by the real gospel of Jesus Christ. Does it hurt you or lessen you physically to love Christ and people? Because if it doesn't, it just may be one of the other three loves. Do you know how much it hurt Christ to love us? You do know. You wouldn't be here at a missions conference. He was brutalized, tortured, destroyed. He was so badly beaten that those who knew him could not recognize him. And he was beaten because of my sin because of your sin it cost him everything to love us and if we want to demonstrate the love of Christ we have to sacrifice something church I am I'm not just trying to be dramatic I am calling everybody into this room to a degree of repentance I know many of you are following the Lord in a wonderful way. Is there any of these things in us? Are we really sacrificing? Can you evaluate that within yourself? We have the cure for the world. It's as if though God was persuading men through us to believe in Christ that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him and to love people you want to get people's attention love them I'm not saying they'll get saved automatically I am saying it will get their attention if you love them like Christ loved us all this fly-by evangelism just is not that effective. Investing and demonstrating the love that Christ has demonstrated, you will turn heads because it's beautiful. There's nothing as beautiful as the love of Christ. There's nothing as beautiful as sacrificing for others. We have the message of forgiveness with the Great Commission. The message of forgiveness. I'm out of time, but let me give you this. Let me give you that. I'm just, I'm almost done. I am asking you. It's not about my table or my missions organization. There are many missionaries out there. I'm not just saying go pray for them. I am asking you to find one, write a note or a notification in your phone to start praying for them. Find one. Pray for them. Pray. Just write it down. Uh, we got so many notes we can write down and reminders and pens. And 
Say, I am going to commit, not just me personally, me and my children, one day a week, or, or whatever the Lord leads you to do, we are going to spend 30 minutes praying for this missionary, or for this work, or for this church plant, or for this. That is your assignment. That's the first part of your assignment today. That's what you must do. Is that too much? No, that's what you must do. It's a mandate that we pray. Find one today. Find one before you leave. Secondly, I am asking that you to consider. I've, I, I, I travel a lot when I'm in the States. I don't know how much money. I tried to, I'm trying to be a good steward. I, we spend on food in different places like gas stations maybe pray about, even today, I'm not saying go home for three years and think about it, supporting a missionary. Say, hey, can, I can spare $50 a month. I'm not trying to make sure you give the littlest, but a lot of us are strapped. I get it. But America is very affluent. Too much has been given. Much is required. Do you have $50 that you can spare to support one of these missionaries to go continue planting churches in South America or Asia? You can Consider it, would you, would you just consider it, please? Consider that. Do it. Send. Send money to these things. I'm sure I speak on behalf of the missionaries that it is something that they need. Missionaries? Cowards. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> they need money. They need money. And it's hard for them at times to ask when they're on this stage. They need money to continue. And listen, they wouldn't be here with tables set up unless Pastor Steve has vetted them already. So they're approved by Pastor Steve. Is there any not approved? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Go find a missionary and have you and your family give 50 bucks a month to them. Or do what the Lord puts you on, on your heart. And thirdly, would you go, not only pray, not only send, but you go. And I want you, before you leave today, do it right now if you want to, to write three names down on that piece of paper or on the notes of your phone of the people that the Lord has been trying to get you to share the gospel with. And I want you to share it with them within seven days. Now, I, I may be getting legalistic. I won't know if you do or not. So I want you to write three names before you leave today of the people that you need to go and preach Christ to. Those three things. You pray, support a missionary for those who aren't missionaries and if you're a missionary and you don't support missions, you're fired. And thirdly, go share the gospel with three people this week. The Great Commission is not an option it is the highest calling for us Christians. Forgiveness is the most beautiful jewel that anybody can ever receive in their Christian life. Let me end with this quote. I know I'm a broken record. I share it all the time when I'm here, but it is my most favorite quote, and I'm, I'm assuming some of you have not heard it. Malcolm Mugridge, who was a brilliant British journalist, and he became a Christian, I really enjoy him. He lived to see World War I and World War II, and Pastor Steve, you can come on up or whatever. I'm, I'm done. And, and he, he said these words. 
We look back upon history and what do we see? Empires rising and empires falling. Wealth accumulated and wealth dispersed. Shakespeare has spoke of great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. I look back upon my own countrymen in England who are still convinced of what is a popular song, God who made the mighty will make the mightier yet. I've seen in America more powerful than the rest of the world combined and if they so desired could conquer the known world with its military might and power and nuclear power. I've heard a crazed cracked Austrian announce to the world the establishment of a Reich that would last a thousand years. I've heard an Italian clown announce to the world he was going to stop and restart the calendar with his own ascension to power. I've heard a murderous Georgian Brigham in the Kremlin acclaimed by the intellectual elite as a wiser than Solomon, a more humane than Marcus Aurelius, and a more enlightened than Shoker is amongst us. All in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. England, a tiny island off the coast of Europe, threatened with bankruptcy and dismemberment. America threatened with losing its precious fluid. And he wrote that years ago. He doesn't know about our gas prices. Losing its precious fluid to keep the motorways roaring and the smog settling. Hitler, Stalin, and Mussolini, forbidden names in the governments that they founded, all in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. And behind the debris of these solemn supermen and self-styled diplomatists and politicians stands the gigantic figure of one man in whom, by whom, and through whom is the forgiveness of sins, the man, Jesus Christ. He is our Savior, isn't he? Pray, send, and go today. And let's start a revival right from this missions conference that we have each year at Calvary Chapel, Philly. Thank you for listening. God bless you. Let me pray for you as Pastor Steve comes up. Lord, we need you. We cannot fathom your beauty to its fullness, though many of us have experienced the salvation that you have brought us and the forgiveness of sins. Would you please move in our hearts, Holy Spirit, and come upon us to do the work of an evangelist, as Pastor Steve said earlier, and your word says, to do the work of praying and sending and going pushing out by the beauty of your nature, the materialism and humanism that so quickly resides in our hearts. Would you do that, Lord? And may we see more missionaries sent, more people in our lives hearing the gospel even this week. And I pray for a revival and a pouring out of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I ask, amen.